Welcome back to That's Ancient History. Today I am joined by Grace Page, a fellow university student of mine from Roehampton University. Grace is currently finishing up her master's where she has been researching gender, the art of persuasion and Aeschylus's Oresteia, part of which we're going to be hearing about in today's episode. If you're not familiar, the Oresteia by Aeschylus was a trilogy of three Greek tragic plays and in fact the only example of a complete trilogy to have survived from classical Greece. The trilogy was first performed at the Dionysia Festival in 458 BC and won first prize, so that's pretty high praise. The title, the Oresteia, comes from the Greek hero Orestes, whose life is at the centre of these plays, although there are various different characters who play pivotal roles in these three stories, one of whom is Clytemnestra. Orestes' mother, who is in fact the focus of today's episode. Aside from researching Clytemnestra, Greek tragedy and Pytho or persuasion, Grace is also about to undertake her PhD at Roehampton University as well. In this, Grace will be researching flower imagery in weddings and funerals in ancient Greece. And if you want to see more of what Grace is up to after listening to this week's podcast episode, then you can check her out on Instagram and Twitter at Grace Nat Page. But without further ado, let's hear from the woman herself. Well, thanks for coming round and joining me and to talk all about tragedy and women in Clytemnestra. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk about what I've been studying. Yeah, well, it's, I've, I've also gotten to see you talk about this um, at one of the student conferences as well, and it was very interesting to listen to, and that was the day when we decided that this had to be a podcast topic. Mm-hmm. It's like, yes, more people need to know about this, but obviously people listening have a variety of different backgrounds, so they're not all going to have the same background that we have, having studied classics for quite a few years now. So I was hoping we could do some introductory stuff, and I know... In this episode, we're going to talk a lot about Aeschylus' Oresteia, which is a trilogy of Greek tragic plays, and one of the main characters, who is Clytemnestra. I was hoping you could tell me a little bit more about what those plays were, what story they told, and who Clytemnestra was in Greek mythology. Mm -hmm. So Clytemnestra has been in a number of different plays. She's mentioned in Homer, there's also like Euripides and Sophocles plays about the same family as well. I'm only focusing on Aeschylus's Oresteia, which uh, starts with the Agamemnon, the first play, then goes on to the Kophoroi, which is also commonly known as the Libation Bearers, and then the final play in the trilogy is the Eumenides. Is so, it silly that, sorry to interrupt, but is it silly that when anybody ever mentions Libation Bearers it makes you think of the last Harry Potter book that she uses that <laughs> as the, <laughs> the quote at the beginning yeah. of the book? Yeah. See guys, classics is relevant. Yeah. So basically what happens in the Agamemnon is Agamemnon, no, Hold on, start over. Okay, so uh, my this chapter, my dissertation that I'm working on, is focusing on the first two plays in the trilogy, the Agamemnon and the Kofori, because Clytemnestra is killed at the end of the Kofori, so she's not in the Eumenides, so <laughs> the chapter doesn't really focus <laughs> on that one. Um, so basically, the Agamemnon, a quick summary, a quick yeah. summary of it is. Uh, Clytemnestra is at home, her husband Agamemnon has been away in Troy fighting for 10 years. She's started a a sexual relationship with his cousin in those past 10 years. It's a lot of bad family history (laughs) there. Drama, yeah. Yeah, because uh, Agamemnon's dad killed his nephews. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is Agamemnon's dad. (laughs) Okay, yeah. And fed them to him. Oh, 
yeah. <laughs> okay, so yeah, there's some um, awkward family relationships going on there. Yeah, so I guess this is probably having that relationship with Clytemnestra to get power back. Okay, family. yeah. So there's a family curse happening there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, basically Clytemnestra is at home ruling Argos where they live, and then Agamemnon comes home and... Well, we're going to discuss what happens, but he is killed by Clytemnestra, mm-hmm. and she and Aegisthus take control of Argos. Is there a reason in particular that Clytemnestra would be angry at Agamemnon? Yes, because um, this is not in the Oresteia, but it's brought up quite a few times in other stories and in Homer. For Agamemnon to sail to Troy to do the war, he had to sacrifice his daughter Iphigenia. And also, so yeah, Clytemnestra's daughter as well. Fair enough, I'd be angry. Yeah, so he's, <laughs> he's sacrificed their daughter, basically, to get okay. a nice wind to sail to Troy. And she's not happy about that. One of my PhD supervisors, Fiona McCarty, has argued that she's not just angry about her daughter being sacrificed. She's also, like, wants power, basically. Okay, yeah. So, so there's a lot of reasons going on here. Multiple motivations. Multiple reasons. Also her new lover. Yeah. yeah. Lots of reasons. <laughs> Lots of reasons she wants to kill him. But anyways, he comes home, he's killed. And that's the end of the Agamemnon. Mm-hmm. And then the Kofori is their son, who mm-hmm. Clytemnestra sent away to live with other people, um, returns. Mm-hmm. And it's a traditional male revenge narrative. He kills her lover and then he kills her. Okay, because she killed his father. Yeah. yeah. And that's Orestes, isn't it? Who, yes. Yeah, the trilogy is named after. So yeah, so that's like a good introduction. So obviously you are writing about these plays and Clytemnestra's role in these plays, which is quite a pivotal one. So despite the fact that the first play is actually called Agamemnon, from from what I've read and heard of you talking about this story and, and these plays, Clytemnestra very much pushes forward the narrative. So I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit more, or us a little bit more, about how Clytemnestra plays the like central role in, in this first play, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, Agamemnon's actually in the play for a very short time. He mm. comes home, they have a conversation, he goes into the house, he's killed. Okay. But, like, the play is mostly about Clytemnestra. Yeah. It goes through like a series of... Like, she has a um, beacon signal set up, so she knows when he'll be coming home. Okay. And so that's the beginning of the play, is, like, her recognising the signals and her trying to persuade the other people of Argos, like the watchman in the chorus, that mm-hmm. he is returning. So most of the play is focused on Clytemnestra. Aegisthus isn't really in it until right at the end and only for a short time as well. Yeah. It's mostly Clytemnestra in the okay. chorus. Um, and how exactly does she kill Agamemnon? Debatable. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> with an axe or a sword is a big debate. Okay. Um... After she kills him, she comes. She kills him when he's in the bath. Okay, so he yeah, yeah. The house takes a bath, and then um, obviously it's like stage instruction. So uh, what it says is she comes out of the house with the body in a bathtub. She's covered in blood and holding a weapon. <laughs> but we don't. Okay, we don't, we don't know, know exactly what weapon. weapon. <laughs> okay, um, and you already briefly mentioned something to do with persuasion there, and I know obviously because Clytemnestra is central to this play, she's doing a lot of the speaking, and her words have a great power throughout this story in this play and I know that you in particular use a few different Greek terms that kind of describe this um, and I was wondering if maybe you could tell us a little bit about those terms and define them, define them for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so my dissertation is called Pytho and Gender within the Orsaya. Um, Pytho in its like most basic translation into English means persuasion. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm doing basically in my dissertation is showing that it's a lot of different things in a lot of different contexts. Uh, so I use the word dolos a lot, which uh, can be translated as deception. Mm-hmm. So kind of pytho can also be a form of deception if you're, uh, particularly in the case of Clytemnestra, where she's persuading him to come into the house 
to kill him. She thinks, so she's telling him to come into the house because it's safe and he's home, but actually she's deceiving him into mm -hmm. the house. So Python can be very deceptive. Um, I also discuss Logos a lot, which just very simply means speech. So Clytemestra is very skilled in her Logos. Mm -hmm. um, and I also discuss Dike a lot, which uh, basically means justice. Mm -hmm. And I discuss how the idea of justice changes as the play go along because different characters use justice in different ways okay um, and a lot of times a character's idea of justice will lead to their own downfall Clytemnestra's idea of justice is kind of a life for a life blood revenge mm -hmm. Agamemnon's killed their daughter so she kills him but when Orestes comes her idea of a life for a life takes her own life yeah, basically backfires a little yeah, bit yeah the part of the Orestia is one of the themes is a transition from personal revenge to organized justice. That's why Orestes' story doesn't end in more blood revenge. It ends by him being acquitted by the Areopagus, the Athenian law courts. Mm, okay, yeah, sort of like a move from the slightly more old-fashioned form of justice to the kind of civilized, democratic mm -hmm. justice courts in Athens, yeah. So something else that comes through in your research is the way in which men and women are depicted differently and you've talked about Agamemnon, you've talked about Orestes, their son, and Clytemnestra, but the same images can be used for men and women but mean very different things, can't they, in tragedy? So I was just wondering how, how that functioned. Yes, uh, so what I speak about in my dissertation as well is the use of lion and lioness imagery within the Oresteia. Um, I did my bachelor's dissertation on um, similes in Homer actually, so I do have a background in working on like lion stuff. Yeah. So in Homer, being compared to a lion is a very good thing. It represents strength, courage and heroism, like very positive connotations. Uh, but the lion is changed in tragedy. It's used a lot of times for women, becomes a lioness, and often that takes a negative tone. Uh, a lot of people have argued that it's saying that a woman is savage. Uh, another PhD student who just recently finished from, recently graduated? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Recently graduated from our university, um, Alessandra Abadista. She just recently wrote a chapter on this in a new book that just came out about the lioness in tragedy, which is very good and I highly recommend. So she is basically arguing her chapter that the tragic lioness is used to express the tragic humanity of the acts of violence because the Homeric lion is normally a man committing these acts against an enemy on mm -hmm. the battlefield, so it's positive, but the lioness commits these acts within the family, which causes more suffering. So she's not protecting the lion family, she's hurting it. So that's okay. where the savage aspect comes from it. Uh, okay, yeah, so sort of where where violence is appropriate and who can appropriately commit violence. Men at yeah. war, yes, women in the home, no. Um, what, I take it Clytemnestra does not come off particularly well in this trilogy then. Is she sort of demonised? Is she seen, portrayed negatively, would you say? Yes. Um, I've got a good quote about that here from Alessandra again. Um, she says that women, these tragic lioness, do not play the natural and social role that the polis would have expected. Mm -hmm. So they are not um, just the women and the mother and the family. They mm -hmm. are act She's acting like a man, basically. Uh, she's compared to a man a few times in the trilogy. Um, when she persuades the chorus, they say, you speak sensibly like a man, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, a lot of a lot of my dissertation is focusing on the inversion of gender roles in the yeah. Orsaya. 
Well, lots of people agree that Aeschylus is interested in exploring gender roles within mm -hmm. his work. Uh, so a lot of that is um, in Clytemnestra, basically. So basically, Pytho, uh, like persuasion, is normally something that's associated with women in ancient Greece. They use their words to incite men to action. Mm. It is very, it's a woman's skill. So Clytemnestra has that, which is typical of women. But when she uses it, she's often compared to a man because she's sensible like a man. That's so very interesting. Um, Aegisthus who says that he's planned the murder, therefore incited her to murder, isn't portrayed as having any type of pytho as well. So he's actually called a woman when he says he planned the murder. Okay. But he's not shown as having any type of pytho, only Clytemnestra does. So she has like both qualities of masculine and feminine. Because she kills Agamemnon, she is taking the traditional male role in the murder. Normally it's the man who takes blood revenge. But it is also kind of feminine because... Um, Blood revenge in Athenian culture, it's a bit weird, um, <laughs> but there were different um, things that it was acceptable to take blood revenge for. Mm -hmm. So in adultery cases, a lot of times blood revenge was acceptable for a man to take, but if it was like another murder case, like someone murdered your family member, most men would prefer to take compensation for that rather than take blood revenge. Mm -hmm. And it was women who were seen as like very bloodthirsty and wanting blood revenge for a family member's death. So her reasons for taking the blood revenge are actually kind of feminine, mm -hmm. but she actually does it instead of inciting a man to do it, which is very masculine. So she has a very interesting combination of masculine and feminine characteristics. I suppose that's quite in contrast as well with women's everyday role in Athens when it comes to the actual legal justice system in which women's voices were excluded, women didn't go to court, men were the one speaking, they were the one using logos in, in these kind of situations, so it's interesting. Do, I wonder if that, I mean this is just me thinking off the top of my head, I wonder if it's something to do with this this trilogy which explores the move from old-fashioned forms of revenge to a more organised justice system, if that early stage where Clytemnestra is playing a role that then women shouldn't play is sort of part of that progression. I don't know if that made sense. <laughs> it could be because the trilogy is set in Argos, which is not a democracy, you know, it's a monarchy, there's a ruling family. So it is very significant that the trilogy comes to Athens for its final close because the play was performed in Athens. So I think the people who are viewing that would want to see like their values represented yeah. at the end. So Clytemnestra is not one of those values. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. What would you consider to be one of the most pivotal, important scenes in the Agamemnon that, that highlights these themes that you've been talking about? Mm -hmm. um, a very significant scene I discussed is what's known as the carpet scene. Um, recently it's becoming a bit more known as the tapestry scene because a lot of people have said it's not really carpets, it's more tapestries. It's <laughs> okay, <so> a <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so basically it's right when Agamemnon comes home, he comes home in his carriage. I think it's a carriage basically. Yeah. Um, and Clytemnestra says he's a king who's won a war, so he should walk on these very rich and expensive tapestries to enter the house. And what occurs after is called a stichomythia. Mm. It just it's a series of reasons and then she refutes them basically. Okay. So he gives five reasons why he shouldn't walk on the tapestries. <laughs> so he gives five reasons that he shouldn't walk on the tapestries. Uh, so one, it's against religious belief. So two, it's a non-Hellenic custom, so a non-Greek custom, basically saying it's something the king of Troy would do. Mm. Um, three, women must not pamper their husbands. 
Four, praise should not come from a wife. And five, such praises would make him the object of envy and are therefore impious. Mm -hmm. um, so Clytemnestra refutes all five of his reasons. So she says that stepping on the tapestries is not nearly as impious as killing his daughter. So that's bringing it up right before her reason. Um, two, that non-Greek people, such as the king of Troy, are not necessarily bad. And Agamemnon cannot reject her request without seeming bad. Three, he should not be afraid of his wife's praise and accept it without fear. Four, that those who are not envied are not prosperous. Okay, yeah. See, logical. <laughs> yeah, logical, yeah. Um, so what is happening in this scene is a lot of scholarships focused on why Agamemnon yields to Clytemnestra, because he knows that walking on the tapestries is wrong. It's impious, it's against the gods. It's basically, um, these were used in religious-type ceremonies, uh, so it could be impious in that way. Another argument is also... Uh, stepping on such a fine material is impious because it implies that you have like assurance in your future prosperity okay, So that's yeah. kind of thinking you know more than the gods. So either way It's it's just bad for him to walk on the tapestries. He knows that so why does he do it is the question um, a lot of scholarship has focused on Agamemnon in the scene which I don't think is correct. I think the scene is more about Clytemnestra mm. um, So basically there's three types of study going on here there's the naturalists, which look at natural behaviour within the scene. Um, for example, someone has argued that Agamemnon's just tired after war. So that's natural behaviour, that's why he does it. There's the supernaturalists, which look for reasons outside the scene, which is the family curse. He does it because the family curse makes him. And then there's the symbolists, which look for symbolism in the scene. He does it because trampling on the tapestries is trampling on the beauty of the house, which mm. is what he did when he killed his daughter. So it's symbolic in that way. There's also the dramatic necessity argument. He says he walks on the tapestries because dramatic necessity <laughs> says he has to, to go okay. into the house alone. The point of him walking on the tapestries is that he goes into the house alone so he doesn't have his guards with him, mm. so Clytemnestra can kill him. So dramatic necessity, basically. I'm in between the symbolist and the dramatic necessity argument. What I'm arguing is that this scene is necessary to complete Clytemnestra's characterization as a persuasive and deceitful woman. Mm. So I think uh, it has been heavily foreshadowed. You know, she's persuaded the chorus, she's persuaded the watchmen, persuaded all these people, and here, finally, when Agamemnon's home, she deceives him into coming into the house alone. Mm -hmm. I think the scene would be very different had he just decided to walk into the house alone and she killed him. Mm. I think it's showing like a resistance on his part to go into the house, but she persuades him and tricks him mm. into the house where she then kills him. Um, I think it's filling both the feminine and masculine roles within the murder. The feminine comes from deception. When Aegisthus comes out after Agamemnon has been killed, he actually says um, the deception was clearly the woman's part. Uh, but so she's done the deception and she's also killed Agamemnon. She's mm. played both the masculine and feminine roles in this murder. Mm. Yeah, and it's really interesting that, uh, that for like decades long or however this long the scholarship's been going on that scholars have tried to interpret what the scene says about Agamemnon, whereas you're pointing out that actually perhaps it says more about Clytemnestra and that that's being overlooked in favour of Agamemnon when really she's kind of at the centre of this play because mm -hmm. Agamemnon's barely in it, yeah. as we've established. A lot of recent scholarship is focusing at looking at Clytemnestra more. Okay, that's good. Like with feminist readings and stuff yeah. like that. So again, the play is named after Agamemnon, but Clytemnestra is the main character. Mm. So a lot of more recent scholarship is definitely looking at Clytemnestra, which is really good, I think. Yeah, it's not something I've ever done much, spent much time researching, but it is interesting to think 
why names are picked for the titles of plays. Uh, speaking of why they pick the names, where the play is performed is important as well mm. because this was performed at a Dionysus festival mm. in Athens as well. So um, a lot of people think that the inversions in gender and the questioning of gender roles that's seen in this play is representative of that because that would be an appropriate place to do mm. something like that as well. Yeah, yeah. Hmm, this is very interesting. So we've concentrated very much so far in our discussion on the Agamemnon play, but as you mentioned at the beginning in the sequel, shall we call it, yeah. the Libation Bearers or the... Kofori. Kofori. Clytemestra dies. So could you tell us a little bit more about what happens to Clytemnestra at the end of her story. Her son Orestes returns from where he's been housed um, just with another family basically. So he returns, he meets up with his sister Electra who tells him what's been going on, you know, and um, he kills Aegisthus and his mother. Um, so killing the killing of Aegisthus is widely seen as lawful homicide of an adulterer. When he's tried in the Eumenides and the law courts, he's not charged with killing Aegisthus at all. Mm. So that's widely seen as um, he's taken blood revenge on an adulterer. That's okay. Um, the killing of Clytemnestra is more relevant to the plot and what I'm writing. Um, so normally Clytemnestra's persuasion has worked very well in the past. She's managed to persuade Agamemnon in the house and killed him. She persuaded the chorus. You know, she's doing pretty well here, um, but it doesn't work on Orestes. She does try to persuade him though, right before she is killed. Um, she actually tells him like, I breastfed you or something to that effect basically, mm -hmm. um, but he still kills her. So I see it as a representation that divine power is more powerful than human Pytho. Her persuasion doesn't work as well on him because he is ordained by the gods to do this basically. Um, my previous supervisor, Fiona McHardy, um, has written on this in her book on revenge and she sees the scene as symbolic of dominance of the male over the female in power, inheritance and blood. So he's reasserting masculine dominance into mm. the house by killing her. Okay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fun note That's to end on. <laughs> Ancient Greece for you. Yeah. <laughs> well perhaps we can wrap things up then with my traditional ending question which is to ask you for a book recommendation that perhaps people listening might be interested to check out after listening. Yes, um, so my future PhD supervisor has just had a book release that she edited called Revenge and Gender. It isn't just classics, there's a few chapters on classics which is the lioness chapter as well but there's also um, chapters from other periods in history mm. like renaissance and medieval stuff and it's yeah revenge and gender it's a very good book i highly recommend it just mm. came out mm, okay that sounds good nice breadth of topics well thank you so much for joining me this has been so interesting and i'm sure everybody listening will agree you're welcome well yeah make sure to check grace out on all of her social media at uh at grace nat page okay i will yeah <laughs> <laughs> i couldn't get my full name on twitter it's too long yeah. too long and exciting well yeah on twitter and instagram i will i will link grace make sure to go and check her out thank you so much once again for joining me this has been wonderful You're welcome. Um, we're gonna go now eat pizza let's so. go get pizza okay <laughs>